When you're building your marketplace and you, you have your chicken and egg problem, uh, the easiest place to start is with supply because the sellers on the platform are financially motivated to be on the platform. And I would go to them and set low expectations saying, hey, we're launching this, we're free to launch at the beginning and we take just a, a rake, uh, be in there. But here's the key and here's the pro tip. It's easy to have infinite supply. But if you drown your marketplace in infinite supply and you don't have demand for it, they're all going to churn. They're not going to be engaged. So when you launch, you curate the very best supply for it in one vertical, in one category, maybe even in one geography, like in one zip code. And then you find demand for that. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Fabrice Grinda, founding partner of FJ Labs. FJ Labs is a VC that specializes in marketplaces and invests pretty much in every geography and stage of the venture category. As Fabrice puts it, they do angel investing at venture scale. And I think what he means by that is not only do they not lead rounds, which is more typical to an angel, but they do a massive number of investments every year. Last year, they did almost 200 new investments. Now, Fabrice is super interesting beyond VC. Uh, he's been a serial entrepreneur for a couple of decades now and has really interesting views and perspectives on wealth and social impact. He started what was essentially the eBay for Europe and then OLX, which is essentially the Craigslist for the rest of the world. He shares some incredibly useful tips for entrepreneurs, especially for entrepreneurs focused on marketplaces. And we talk about his approach to venture capital, how FJ Labs operates, how he makes decisions, and much more. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Chelsea Capital. Chelsea Capital provides high-quality, low-cost accounting, tax, CFO, and alternative finance solutions. For those who don't know, alternative finance solutions include venture debt and other forms of non-dilutive capital. They help companies scale their operations while keeping costs low. If you're interested in learning more, visit chelsea.capital. Fabrice, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I've been very excited to have you on. Uh, I think you've got a lot of wisdom and you, you, you do something that most people don't do in that you practice radical candor. It feels like in everything, every time I've ever talked to you. So I think we're going to get into some really interesting topics today. And I think I have a feeling you're going to share more than people are normally comfortable with, which I think is very powerful. You're going to help a lot of people. Uh, let's start though. Let's level set this. Uh, can you give an overview of FJ Labs? I think people need to know what you're doing for your day job before we kind of extend beyond that. Sure. So my, um, my current day job is uh, to be the founding partner at FJ Labs, which is kind of a venture fund. It's kind of an accidental venture fund. Uh, it, it really came out of uh, my angel investing uh, um, activities while I was an entrepreneur. So for the last 24 years, I've been building companies, I've been running companies, and other founders kept approaching me uh, for me to invest in them. And for the longest time, I thought, should I be doing this, right? Is it a distraction from my core mandate as a founder to be investing in other startups? And I'm like, you know, if I can articulate lessons to learn to others, um, it probably means I've internalized them. And so it's okay. And meeting all these amazing founders beyond helping them realize their dreams is also an amazing way to keep my fingers on the pulse of the market. So by 2013, when I sold my last company, which by the way, was like ginormous, and I don't know if we 
you want to cover that. Yeah. Um, well, tell everyone what the last company was real quick. Yeah. So the last company was a company called Oalux. Uh, it's today the biggest classified site in the world. It's uh, 11,000 employees in 30 countries. It's the leading uh, classified site in Brazil and all of Latin and Russia, Ukraine, and all of Eastern Europe in uh, India, Pakistan of all um, the Southeast Asia and, and uh, the UAE and all the Middle East. And it's basically what Craigslist would be or should be if it was run, you know, by someone like me, meaning uh, modern UX, UI, integrated payments and shipping and escrow. Multilingual with, uh, and all the Exactly. Goods. No, no spam, no scam, no murders, et cetera. And, and actually targeting primarily women in a female-friendly space, given that women are the primary decision makers in all household purchases. Um, that company is like over 300 million users a month. It's, it's absolutely ginormous. And after I sold that, I already had 150 investments, doing really well, already pulled them with my current partner. And I was like, you know, I like building companies, like investing companies. Let's create a structure that allows me to do that. And I never really set out to build a venture fund. And I think by virtue of being visible, I started being approached by potential investors and said, hey, we would like exposure to what you guys are doing. Do you mind if we co-invest with you? And so kind of 2016, we took our first uh, investor or LP for 50 million, one LP outside of our own capital. Um, That's we a good LP. That. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. I mean, basically, there are people that had, it, it's a company called Telenor. They were a, a big telco in, the, in, in Norway, and they had backed my biggest competitor uh, when I was running OLX. And ultimately, we fought a big war, and we merged 51 for us, 49 for them. And by then, we, all of this had like unwound. They'd made like a billion dollars, and they ended up owning a whole bunch of classified assets around the world. And they were like, hey, you know, we love you, and <laughs> you've also made a lot, lots of money. We'd, mm. we'd like to understand what's going on in marketplaces in the US to either bring it to our markets or defend against disruption. And, and so it was really kind of... Um, both strategic for them um, and and financial. Um, in 2018, we raised fund two, and they're like, "Hey, if you want to bring other people on board, why not?" And other people started approaching us, so we started getting like a lot of family offices that were being disrupted by tech, and a lot of other strategics were interested in, in investing in the category. And and so we finished uh, deploying that. That was 100, 225 million. Finished deploying that in July um, of 2021. And then we closed fund three, which would be like three, 400 million with kind of like either amazing founders that have worked with forever, like Reid Hoffman or, you know, whatever, Kevin Ryan or the founder of like Wayfair or these family offices were actually strategics uh, interested in in either buying or investing later stages in the companies we invest in. So I guess what, 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 it, that was a long-winded way to answer your question. So my day job is running FJ Labs. FJ Labs is an, a, a, a venture fund specializing in marketplaces. We invest in every geography and every category at every stage. Um, but the, the focus is we really do angel investing at venture scale. We don't lead. We don't price. We don't take board seats. We decide after two one-hour meetings whether we invest or not. With full transparency, we tell you why we're investing, why we're not investing, what we need to change for us to change our mind. And we try to be as founder-friendly as possible. So we're not setting the terms. We decide very quickly. Uh, and we're super prolific. I mean, to give you a sense of scale, to date, we've invested in over 850 startups. Last year, we invested in 281 startups, 180 new investments, 101 follow-ups. And That's yeah. a lot for a venture firm. And it's been High going volume. really well. I mean, we've had 265 exits and so far and a 45% realized IR. So things are going well. That's great. Okay, so what's the typical investment profile? Because when you say angel investing at a venture scale, I get the angel investing part that you're 
the process is less rigorous. It's um, you're you're looking at kind of more strategic elements rather than doing your own diligence. I get that. Nothing wrong with it. The question yep. is, when you say at a venture scale, is that the f- reflection of the volume, the amount of capital you're managing, the volume? You know, what is it? The check size? Yeah. The the angel investing in venture scale is really because of the of the overall capital deployment you know we're deploying uh, 100 million a year 150 million a year potentially at those funds uh which is way more than typical angels deploy now the reason it's still angel investing is we're writing small checks relative to the lead we don't want to compete with the top vcs in the world for allocation we want to be their friends in fact most of the deals come from friendly vcs or, or sharing deals with us in return of course we send them all of our deals and so our pre-seed check size is going to be like 200k or c, or c check size like 300k or a check size is 325 or b onwards is 725 so it's fixed check sizes the mm. multi-class if less is available and they're always small relative to the lead and that's why it's kind of angel investing uh in venture scale but i'm more than happy to talk to you and walk you through the process of how we decide whether we invest or not well if you've teed it up let's do it tell me about the process <laughs> Yeah. So actually, before I get to the process, I'll, I'll walk you through the flow. These days, every week, we get about 200 inbound deals, and often mon- many more than that. Um, and they come from three sources. A third comes from the friendly VCs. And every eight to 12 weeks, we sit down the top 100 VCs in the world, covering every stage, every category, every geography, and we share deal flow. And, and it goes from everyone, uh, you know, the amplifiers or whatever, first minute of the pre-seed stage, with the general catalyst, Bessemer, Sequoia, first walk in the middle, all the way to whatever the tigers at the at the later stages, where we bring them all of our best deals, um, and in return they invite us some of the deals where we have expertise, so mostly marketplaces. Um, about a third of the deal comes from fellow founders. So at this point, we've backed almost two thousand founders in the eight hundred thirty-five companies, and they come back for their next company. They send us their friends, they send us their employees to becoming founders. And about a third of the deals come in cold. And actually, we review even the the, the cold inbound deals. And about 16% of the investments we've made have come from cold. And some of the very best investments come from cold. So we get these deals. Uh, they're assigned randomly to one of the team members, unless someone says they want it. We, uh, we're four partners, three associates, and one analyst. And... Um, we review the deal. We decide, is it appropriate or for us or not? And usually about three quarters of them are not. They're, they're amazing, but they're not for us. They're like biotech, hardware, space tech, and, and we don't feel that we have appropriate expertise. So we review and we the other 50, we take a one-hour call. And that one-hour call, we try to assess four things. And that's actually the evaluation criteria. Uh, do we like the team? Do we like the business? Do we like the deal terms? And does it meet our thesis of where the world is heading? Now, let me double click on all four of these because do we like the team? I mean, every VC in the world will tell you, I only invest in extraordinary people. The thing is, that's extraordinarily subjective. What is an amazing team? And we've actually looked and thought through what it meant for founders to be very successful. And for us, it's someone who is both uh, a visionary and an execution machine. And that means someone who is extremely eloquent and has uh, you know, extraordinary communication skills, but that's not enough because if you only have that, maybe you build a, 
you you build a very large company, but one that's not profitable or doesn't scale, et cetera. But that said, it is necessary. It's a necessary but insufficient condition because if you have an amazing, if you're an amazing orator or public speaker, you're going to attract better teams. You're going to raise more money. You're going to get better PR. You're going to have better BD deals. But you also need to be able to execute. And and we look at that, the way we evaluate it over the course of one hour call is how well you understand the business you're in, how well you understand the union economics. And we want you to be able to articulate even pre-launch, you know, we want you to have done the landing page analysis and done a customer co- customer acquisition cost analysis and compare that to you know, what, look at what the average order value in the industry is, see what the net margin structure you're expecting is, and you should be able to articulate that intelligently. And the Venn diagram of people that are amazing storytellers and people that are amazing at execution is actually, the intersection is very small. And we want people that are both. Uh, number two, we want businesses that are that are compelling. And, for, and, and, and so for many, some VCs, by the way, number one is enough. And if you're pre-seed, pre-launch, obviously, we'll out, this is the most relevant metric. But once you're post-launch, actually, we do care about the other three. Uh, number two is, do we like the business? Which means for us, is the category large enough or can it be large enough through your execution? And are the unit economics compelling? And we are extraordinarily unit economic driven. Um, in marketplaces, and obviously, this is a little bit different if you're in e-commerce, it's a little bit different if you're in SaaS, uh, but we try to invest in businesses where you recoup your fully loaded customer acquisition costs on a net contribution margin basis after six months, and you 3x your your CAC uh, after 18 months. Now, and ideally, we don't know what the LTV to CAC is because you have negative churn, in which case, you know, who knows? It's 10 to 1, 20 to 1, et cetera. And um, if your unit economics are underwater, which can happen, we want you to be able to articulate why with scale they will automatically fix themselves. You know, maybe you're in a food delivery business and right now you're doing one delivery per hour, you're paying $15 an hour, your delivery guy, your unit economics are underwater. But the minute he does three deliveries an hour, it's $5 a delivery and it works. Something like that. Like I don't, it, it, it should not require every store in the multiverse to align for unit economics to work. And we really care about that because otherwise you may build a very large business that doesn't make any money, which in the long run doesn't really work out. Uh, Number three, what are the deal terms? And we are, you know, nothing's cheap in tech, but we want something that's fair in light of the size of the opportunity, the quality of the team, the traction that you have. What is fair? How do you think about that? Um, so valuations went up, especially in the late stage last year, and you know, something I covered in one of my macro articles, but the median pre-seed well, the median valuations didn't move up nearly as much as you might think, and crypto falls a little bit outside that realm. But the the median pre-seed for us until 2020 was like three to five pre, raising one. Uh, and last year, went up to six, seven, but not that much more. And so if you're pre-seed raising at 30, you know, more likely than not, we're not going to do it. Uh, the median seed used to be like rate three, raising at eight and nine pre, and, and last year it went up to 12. Uh, and that's still reasonable for us. And the median A, you know, used to be you're raising seven at 22, and now you're raising 10 at 30. Uh, and 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 those are or those are fair by our standard with relevant traction. So at your seed round, we're expecting you to have like whatever 150k in GMV per month with a 10 15% take rate. At the A round, you're doing 500k in, uh, in GMV. And the B round, you're doing 
2 million in GMV per month, more or less, right? It depends on the take rate you have, et cetera. Um, now, there are exceptions, right? Like the rounds you've been reading about in the press are like, oh, they raise a $50 million Series A at 250 pre. Totally. And these move crazy the stuff mean. But yeah, we wouldn't do those deals. Uh, yeah. They're amazing uh, for the founders and the companies, though actually I can make an argument, many of the companies that dies because the, com- the founders raise too much money at too high a price, they don't grow into that valuation and that kills the companies because of like anti-dilution provisions, no one wants to do Dan rounds. I mean, it's probably one of the top reasons companies die is founders raising too much money at too high a price. So we don't do these deals. So the mean, by the way, is way higher. The mean pre-seed, seed, A and B is way higher than numbers I gave, but the median actually is not. And we're so prolific, we have a good sense of where the market is. And so we, we stick to our heuristics, uh, with the exception that if you're a returning founder for us that has done well before, we will back you no matter what. No matter what you build, no matter the raise, et cetera, you don't even need to take a call. We'll just send you the check. Uh, and so we have done a few crazy deals, uh, but, but that's the reason. And also many of those deals are out of scope for us. Like we had the founders of uh, Vettery, which is a labor marketplace, then decided to go and we sold a Deco for hundred million, made it whatever, 8.5 extra money. Everything was great. And then they went on to build Archer, which is an electric flying taxi company. And they're like, we're launching, we're pre-seed, you know, 80 pre or whatever, hundred pre. And we're like, okay, here's the check. <laughs> you know, what can't value your portfolio anyway. is, is those, is the re-upping founders, your alums? Uh, an ever increasing, ever increasing because we have, we have 2000 founders we backed. There you go. Um, put it differently, 30% of the portfolio is non-marketplace. Uh, and, and many of those are the re-upping founders, um, mm. which is a good sign that they, they're coming back and they want to work with us. So, uh, but we also do like tools around marketplaces, et cetera. And we're doing a lot of stuff that's like, uh, and, and just things that interest us, uh, which actually leads me to selection criteria number four. Uh, is your idea in line with your thesis of where the world is heading? And we are extraordinarily thesis-driven. We have a we have a clear thesis on the future of finance, the future of food, the future of real estate, the future of of automotive, the future, and and even within marketplaces. You know, we have three core theses in marketplaces that we look for, and we want ideas that are in line with that. And and in a way, we're also mission driven, right? The reason I'm a VC, the reason I'm an investor is I, I the world is facing a number of fundamental problems. We're we're facing. Uh, um, a climate crisis. The, we have a social inequality and inequality of opportunity or social injustice. We have a mental and physical well-being crisis. And the I do not think that uh, the political system is going to address any of these. And so it's up to us as founders to use, to be solutionists, to, to use technology to find solutions to the world's problems. And, and so it is mission-driven from that perspective. I want to try to invest in companies founders that are trying to address these fundamental problems. And by the way, the bigger the problem, the bigger the economic opportunity. And and it fits better in a for-profit model because this actually ends up being more scalable and more effective. And so, you know, here you have it. We'd love the team. We'd love the business. We'd love the deal terms. And we and we think that the idea is in line with their pieces. We invest and we can decide that in one hour. That's great. What's the, um, what are the reasons why a founder should choose to work with you guys? This is my underhand pitch. <laughs> take, a, take a swim. The we're former founders, so we actually know what it's like to operate a business, and we can talk extremely intelligently about like the the complexities of of operating in a business. 
we've probably seen more marketplaces than anyone else out there. And in addition to the fact that I run marketplace, I've run marketplaces for most of my life. And so when it comes to everything from like building liquidity, do you start with the supply or the demand? Should you go hyper local or, or, or national or international? Uh, should your rate be 5% or 1% or 20%? You know, how do you measure elasticity of supply and demand? We're probably more well-versed than any other investors out there in this category in terms of being able to help you. And last but not least, we're, we're in an amazing, because we don't lead and we don't price and we have these amazing connections with all the other VCs, we will get you funded. Like our superpower is we will get, if you need help raising or filling this round, we will, we will do that for you. And more importantly, most people do not need help raising a specific, the round they're typically talking to us about. Uh, but if they, when they go to the A, when they go to the B and they go to the C, we will intro them to whomever, like first of all, Greylock, Andreessen, whomever is right for them, we will make the intros. And it is extraordinarily valuable for them because it, it, it de-risks the fundraising. It makes it a lot simpler. Uh, we we will give them feedback on like on the deck, on the pitch, on the process. And uh, it's also super efficient because you, you're like, you know, we have 850 companies in the portfolio and yet we're often the most value added investor these founders have because we really focus on when to help them. You know, we'll do we'll help them right before they go fundraising the next round, and that's the most valuable for them. Okay, so there there is a implicit piece of this that I think is the most interesting. It's the sheer volume of your portfolio, right? There are a couple of firms out there that have huge volumes. TechStars, my buddy over at um, David yeah. Cohen over at TechStars has a huge volume. You've, he's had a very different model than you. Uh, you have a huge volume. It's not as common. Most firms are going out there and targeting 25 deals in a portfolio, something they're about. What is your thinking around the optimal volume in a portfolio and why? So first of all, uh, this is a reflection of my personality and not uh, there's no there's no intelligent portfolio construction. So I actually have done the research on what is the ideal portfolio construction, but the portfolio of FJ Labs is completely built bottoms up. We meet people. If we like them, we invest. If we don't like them, we don't invest. And at the end of the year, the chips fall where they may. And it just so happens, of course, there's more C deals and A deals, more A deals and B deals, more B deals and C deals. There's more US deals than European deals, and there are European deals in India and, and, and Brazil deals. And so if you look at our portfolio from a, a, a number of deals perspective, you know, we're we're mostly seed and A, then a few Bs and very few Cs and, and not too many pre-seed either. And then we're 55% US, Canada, we're 25% Europe, we're 10% we're Brazil, India, and we're like the rest, the rest of the world so all, and really all over the world. But it's not by design. Now, in terms of number of deals, to answer your question specifically, because I diverged on portfolio construction, um, the I'd actually like... I think there are many problems to solve in the world, and I yeah. like finding ways to address many of these. Um, because we choose not to compete with the major VCs, we could actually not run a, a, a concentrated portfolio. So first of all, by design, if I wanted to invest in 30 companies, I would need to be a lead, and I would need to write like 5, 10, 15 million dollar checks. Right. But then the entire strategy of working with the other VCs and being their friend and not their competitor kind of becomes invalidated. But more importantly, as a reflection of my personal philosophy I, I i just like you know meeting meeting lots of interesting people and being exposed to all these different areas and 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 i i get like 
I now I have a great sense of like what's happening in like everything from climate from climate to uh, to, to automotive to real estate, and I think it's fascinating. There are also the corollaries between these different industries, which are the marketplace dynamics are so much closer than people suspect. I, I find that fascinating. And so it's more a reflection of my personality. But that said, there is data on what is the correct um, portfolio size. Uh, Angel listed analysis uh, of uh, what your return profile looks like based on the number of deals you have. Mm-hmm. And basically, because venture follows a power law where the 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 best deals return do most of the returns you need to be in those best deals and the best way to be in those best deals is essentially to be in every deal and so the angel list study which actually was published and peer reviewed and all that is the 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 more diverse your portfolio your portfolio the higher your IRR and your returns that you should invest in all qualified and they have a definition of what qualified means deals possible now the reason most VCs are not built that way by the way is actually driven by the LPs so LPs hate that diversification, right? Because they see their jobs as themselves picking the VCs that are that are more specialized. So the LPs are like, oh, I'm going to have this fund. It's going to be my Series A B2B SaaS company. I'm going to have this fund. They're going to be my Series B, you know, DDC e-commerce in Europe, whatever. And they do their like little funds of fund strategy. And a fund that does all that for them they really don't like because in a way it's like the job they should be doing and, and so lps uh are, are not super keen on that diversified strategy and so it wouldn't it, it wouldn't work for most but it, it really works and and the benefit is over longer periods of time we're always going to be in the top decile performance now in any one fund life by the way we're never going to be top decile because if you have, imagine a fund uh, is hyper concentrated they do 10 investments one of those is 100x, they're going to be a, a 10x fund and they're going to be top decile, but they're going to have massive variability. You know, next fund, their 10 may not hit and they may not return money. And, and by the way, most VC fund, funds actually don't return cash on cash money beyond the S&P. Uh, the top quartile does, and the top quartile is actually highly correlated over, over fund life, uh, but, but most do not. In our case, we I've been, if you include all of my history as an angel investor, and 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 uh, but not as a founder, right? I'm not including my, the, the equity I got in the companies I founded. On the 270 exits we've had, we've had a 45% realized IR over 24 years. You know, that's from I don't know where that ranks. It has to be in the top 10%, maybe in the top 1% over that time period. Given that you're diversifying so much, is the is the core value add more sourcing, or is it more deal selection? Right, because one of the things you know, theoretically, arguably, the best portfolio is one investment, all the money yeah. in the world, and the best company, the best return. Yes. that's it. Right, but yeah. the, with the presumption there is that someone could be a good enough deal picker and get access to it. Right, the core issue for a lot of VCs is they're not great deal pickers. So, how do you how do you think about this? Is is that the message to LPs? Like, hey, look, we're good deal pickers, but we really don't have to be because we we play the game so broadly. Is that part of the narrative for you? Um, not really. This is a, they, so we were I actually would argue we're very good deal pickers. Yeah. Um, we will, but often we will not be in the top 0.1% of deals, by the way, because we're so pr- sensitive on price and we're so sensitive mm. on union economics, you know, like we would have passed on Facebook, we would have passed on Google because neither of them had business models when they launched, nor could they articulate what those models, the, those, uh, those models were. 
Uh, but we have a lot of singles and doubles and triples. So, so even though our portfolio is so broad, we've actually made money on over 50% of our exits, uh, which for a seed, mostly seed fund is extraordinary. Right. You know, yeah, last right. year we had 41 exits. We made money in 24. We lost money in 17. And obviously you make a lot more on the 24 than you lose on the 17. Um, so I think we're very good pickers, number one. But two, obviously, our deal flow is amazing because we've built a brand as these founder-friendly guys who decide after one hour if you invest or not who are super helpful. And and if you're if you're if you're doing anything marketplace related, by the way, marketplace, let me define it pretty widely. Is yeah, you're please. building something that's an intermediary between between a seller of something and a, and a and a buyer of something, and that thing could be anything. I mean, so to me. Most of fintech is a marketplace. You know, think of Klarna. It's an intermediary between providers of capital, typically the banks that give you the lines of credit, and consumers that are borrowing. Uh, and, and many people wouldn't think of it that way. But to me, those dynamics, is if you're matching sellers and buyers, regardless of the category, um, it, it, falls in, it, it, fall, it, it falls in the marketplace definition for us, which is obviously why we can invest in like 300 marketplaces in a year. Okay, so there's there's a little bit of learning here. I mean, I, I think you're a bit of a pioneer in this type of volume um, for something outside of an accelerator incubator model. Yeah. So where has this model gone wrong that you've had to correct? What did you learn along the way that's kind of nuanced to not being a VC and not being an investor, but being a high-volume VC or high-volume investor? The, the way... Look, what's... I don't know if it, it's gone wrong in the sense that we can typically so first of all i don't think it's necessarily easily replicable by most because we are in an extraordinarily privileged position to answer also part of like the previous question where the deals right. come to us right. right like most associates and analysts at most vc firms spend their time like networking and finding deals in our case we're like drinking at the fire fire hose of incoming deals and we're reviewing the incoming deals and we would like to do more outbound. It's just we're too busy reviewing the inbound, and we have like the two hundred inbound. Yeah, there's every no week. need. There's no uh, need. Uh, yeah, but we do miss deals as a result of that. So I, I do, we are trying to change that to some extent, even though. So for, first of all, there's the you know part of, part of the reason I can share my entire strategy online, including everything, the deal memos, the philosophy, etc., is even even if you had all of it in your mind with encoded, even though probably hard to do without the 24 years of like at bats of like seeing 5,000 companies a year um, without a deal flow it's not really replicable um, now where it's gone wrong yeah sorry I was gonna say FJ labs is a marketplace yes we are <laughs> or a marketplace absolutely uh, we're, yeah. we're, we're 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 matching founders with 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 money, you know, from our LPs. And and by the way, our LPs, I'm, I'm the largest LP in the fund, right? Like of the mm -hmm. 450 million we've deployed to date, you know, over 100 million of that is my own money. Uh, might be 150. I actually haven't tracked. Don't look at it too closely. Yeah. Uh, because this started as a frankly personal <laughs> investment through my partner Jose and myself. It, right. It again the accidental VC thing. Um. One more thing, and I, I know I didn't answer the question. One more thing we do very differently, by the way, is the follow-ons. We 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 don't reserve capital for follow-ons, so we'll invest out of whatever fund is currently active. The follow-ons, so we tell our because we don't always follow on. We'll evaluate follow-ons as though they were new investments, knowing what we know now of the company, of the team, uh, would of the terms, would we invest? Uh, and 
often the answer is we love the team, we love the company, but the valuation is insane, so we're not taking your paradas. And and so we're we've been following on maybe thirty three percent of the deals, um, but as a result. It doesn't make sense to reserve capital follow-ins in a fund. So we do it in other funds, which leads me to the issues in a way we face, right? Like the problems we face is we have had a really hard time, much harder than I would have expected, raising capital uh, other than the capital that came to us automatically, right? So we've had these LPs that are like friends. They're like, you know, here's a check. Uh, right. They know uh, you or, and they know your success. Those folks. Exactly. Or, or, or strategics that we've worked with uh, f- from uh, across many years who want exposure to what we do or family offices. And so there the capitals come. But like pitching institutional investors has been really, so far we don't have a single institutional investor, put it differently. Uh, they don't love anything about what I just described. The hyper-diversification, because they feel that in a way it's their job to find different different funds that that cover different areas. Um, and and hyper-diversification number of deals. They don't like that we're multi-stage. They don't like that we're multi-geography. Uh, mm. They don't like that the follow-on strategy is, is, is in whatever fund is currently active and which uh, versus you know having capital reserve follows in the original funds and um, so all of that ha- and so it's been it's taken way more time to raise capital than I, I would have liked and and also as a result we're probably a much smaller fund that we should be so right now you know we've closed the first 210 million of the new fund the new fund you know it's like 3 to 500 million 500 million is a hard cap i would like to hit it but you know, it'll be at least 300 million. And, and it's, it's been seven months. It's mostly the existing investors re-upping. Like, and, and yeah, there are new investors, uh, like founders that we've backed that have exited, <laughs> exited that are investing in it, et cetera. But again, we have don't have a single institutional investor um, in, in the fund because of all the reasons I, 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 and I'd like to change that because the reality is we should probably we could be a billion dollar fund with no problem, despite the not leading, not pricing strategy. With the, given the volume we have, like, mm-hmm. think if you do, if I do intelligent portfolio construction, like, what is the maximum size I can deploy at pre-seed without leading? Like two twenty-five k. What's the maximum check size I can deploy at seed without without leading? It's like four fifty. At A, I could probably write a million. At B, I could probably write two million. And at C, it could be right, probably write like, you know. 5 million and up to 10 million in like the pre-IPO rounds. And and so if you look at all the deals last year, all the allocations we had, we could have deployed 350 million. Uh, and yet we, we didn't have that level of capital. And so we only deployed 100 million. So what we've done to not run out of money after a year, because our, our, our LP base is not such that I can actually say, oh, instead of three years, we it's just one year and now we are re-upping. They don't, they don't want that. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and nor could I because I'm kind of the biggest LP. So it's kind of also driven by my personal cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what we did instead is we mem- decreased our check sizes to not run out of capital. You know, so currently, as I said, our A check size is 325K. It could be a million. Our B check size is 725. It could be two. And, her, and, and frankly, our D check size is 725K and could be 10. Right. Um, and so that's been, that's been an issue. I'm tr- trying to address it. We'll see if we were successful in the, in the future. Now, in terms of underlying performance and access to deals, et cetera, nah, I think the hasn't been too much of an issue. I guess the other issue, it's something we've learned is we've had to build a very big office team. I mean, the team, we're 31, um, which is a lot of people. What are most people doing? 
Because it sounds like 10 or so of those are investment professionals. What are the other yeah, 20 so folks have, doing? Yeah. So four partners, three associates, one analyst. So eight investment professionals. Uh, we have two EIRs. Uh, but then we have a big back office team where like the head of operations, the CFO, the 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 lawyer, the, the all the accountants and the um that are in the back office team, and then we have like all the support team for them. So I think we probably have like eight virtual piles of paperwork. Of when you say two hundred deals a year, you mean two hundred piles of paperwork. Yeah. Right. It's a lot lot to do. <laughs> a lot to do. There's yeah, I mean Everything, stock purchase agreements, follow-ons, legal approvals, exit. It, like, there's infinite back office work to do. And and actually, one more thing we haven't done is we're currently not gap not doing gap accounting because like mm. how how do you do gap accounting on 800 startups? And, and we don't wanna, we want to be the founder friendly guys. Like, and so doing an evaluation of each company in the portfolio when they're like seed is a massive exercise that most you know firms which is another reason we haven't been able to raise institutional money um and maybe we need to have, like bite the bullet and do it in fact we're currently talking to like mike siebel and yc and you know people like that like how how do you guys do it right. um and 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 we probably need to buy that bullet at some point uh but yeah it's it's a lot of the issues that like you don't think about when you're dealing when we're lower volume firm okay now you guys are the marketplace experts I think that's very clear. What are three, you know, rules of thumb that marketplace entrepreneurs listening to this need to know? The things that are like, hey, these are the baseline pro tips. Sure. Uh, when you're building your marketplace and you you have your chicken neck problem, uh, the easiest place to start is with supply, because the sellers on the platform are financially motivated to be on the platform. And I would go to them and set low expectations, saying, hey, we're launching this. We're free to launch at the beginning, and we take just a, a rake. Uh, be in there. But here's the key, and here's the pro tip. It's easy to have infinite supply. But if you drown your marketplace in infinite supply and you don't have demand for it, they're all going to churn. They're not going to be engaged. So when you launch, you curate the very best supply for it in one vertical, in one category, maybe even in one geography, like in one zip code. And then you find demand for that. And, and so first of all, they're the very best. So you, you make sure they're engaged. You make sure they understand what the product is. You understand what their needs are. Then you find demand for them, whatever way it is. It could be sales-driven. It could be marketing. It could be Google. It could be Facebook. And by the way, I actually like pay, paid marketing to work because that means it's scalable kind of infinitely. Um, you find demand. And what you wanted to get to for that supply, and again, very limited supply, highly curated, you want to represent if it's an item for sale, you want the probability of the item for sale to be about 20, 25%. Uh, that's when you have pretty good liquidity. If it's a services business, you want to kind of represent at least 20% of the, of the revenues of that, of that provider. Um, mm. And, and then once you have that at that scale, then you scale the supply up one more, like whether it's in the same zip code or near adjacent or adjacent category. And then you match. So you always, you start with supply, you bring them in, and then you scale both always in parallel. A, a problem is that it's so easy to get supply that you could launch, I could launch a locksmith marketplace and put every locksmith in New York on it, but then you have no demand for it. And so the supply is going to churn, there's going to be no engagement, the user experience will be awful, et cetera. So doing that is, is very key. Um, so that's, um, I guess, something to keep in mind or like magic trick number one. Magic trick number two is as you start thinking through, how do I monetize? How much do I charge? Who do I charge? And what is the correct percentages? Because you see marketplaces like stock photography marketplaces that take 
And then you have like some B2B marketplaces where it's essentially 0% rake or 0.1% because of extreme price sensitivity. And so the correct way to assess that is you, you, you look at the elasticity of supply and the elasticity of demand, and you take your rake on the more inelastic part of the curve. And the more inelastic it is, the higher the rake is. Now, it turns out that in most cases, you can take 10 to 20% uh, from the supply side, but it's not, it's not a hard and set rule. It really depends on, on, on how fragmented your supply and demand is. And by the way, the more fragmented it is, the better it is for you as the marketplace, right? Like if, if you're in a market where there's like three or four suppliers and three or four consumers, you're probably not a marketplace. You're probably a distributor uh, and your ability to price and take margin is going to be very limited. And and that's why I'd be very careful of playing in like highly con- con- concentrated industries, right? Like um, it happened to me and not, and not really a marketplace, but I, I was, uh, I ran a company that was selling ringtones to the mobile operators. And in the early days it was okay. But like between 2001, when I launched in 2005, and my, my, well, I sold in 2004, but 2005 when I left, all the operators consolidated, merged with each other, like Singular with AT&T, Verizon with like, don't remember whom, but, but like they, and all of a sudden we went from like 50 customers to like four. <laughs> and on the music company, we're five. And on the music company side, they all merged with each other, like BMG and whatever, and EMI and whomever. And they also went from like many to three or four. And so all of a sudden there were four and five. And it wasn't an issue until we had 50 million in annual revenues. But the minute we hit 50 million in annual revenues, we started being seen by the VP level uh, at these companies and, and they started seeing us in their PL and they started squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. So in 2004, with my company, we did 50 million in revenues and 4 million in profits. In 2005, we did 200 million in revenues and 7 million in profits because they basically divided our margin by three. And so that's not a marketplace. You're a distributor, you're you're a facilitator, but it's not a proper marketplace. Okay, so now you guys do more than invest at FJ Labs, and I know this is evolving a little bit. You guys have been a studio, right? You've been building companies. You want to talk about what you guys do and the method for it? Sure. the The, the reason we were a studio is really, you know, I same thing. It's like, what do I like to do? I like to build companies. I like to invest in companies. I love that. And and so. Every every year, we'd be coming up with ideas and like try to build them either personally and like go run them, which I did for a few of them, uh, or 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 with uh, entrepreneurs and residences. And and we created kind of through happenstance a program that ended up being successful. So so what happened is uh, I don't even remember the year, maybe 2010 or 2011. Um, this uh, young founder. Uh, reached out to me and he's like, "Hey, I'm McKinsey, Harvard Business School. I'm I'm at AGS right now, but I've like raised 500k. I'm trying to build this company." And, and he kept harassing me. Like the thing is, I was running building OL, super busy running OLX, right? Like so, that 10,000 employees in 30 countries, and I was getting emails like that like dozens every week. So I ignored him and ignored them. And one day he's like, "Hey, I'm at the door of your office. You know, <laughs> can we meet?" I'm like, "Okay, maybe I'll meet him and he'll leave, let me be." And he was building like some sort of chat roulette for competitor. And I'm like, you know, terrible idea. It won't work. Um, return the money to your investors, you know, call it a day. And calls me back the next day. He's like, oh, thank you for the radical honesty and candor. No one had been like honest with me. Um, 
I talked to my investors. I offered to return the money, and they said, "No, let's find an idea, another idea." So now, why don't you and I look at finding an idea together? Huh. And I'm like, I'm like, no, that's <laughs> the last thing I want. I have time, uh, and. He, he, I kept saying no. I kept saying no. And then he emailed me a check for five thousand dollars. He's like, "I'm going to pay you five thousand dollars a month to work for you." You know, <laughs> and I'm like, "Hey, fine. Keep your money. You know, I mean, you're super motivated. Clearly, uh, let's uh, let, let's see if we can do this." And in a way, it, it it was useful because it forced me. The first thing I made him do is like help me filter my inbound deal flow. And at that time, it was two hundred a week. It was like forty a week. Um, and I was like, "Can I teach someone else my heuristics?" Can I codify how to evaluate a team, how to evaluate if a business is attractive, what my thesis is, what what appropriate deal terms are, and can I have them you know, do that for me and not pass the next Uber? Uh, and turns out that, well, A, was useful because it forced me to structure my thinking on like what my heuristics were and teach them to him. And once he started seeing all the deal flow, he started getting ideas, started applying the same criteria to his own ideas. And then we started with 50 ideas, then, you know, became 10, then five, then two, then one, then we pivoted. And that company became Adorme. And Adorme is a laundry D2C commerce subscription company, both e-commerce or not, which today is like, I don't know, over 200 million revenues. I don't know, 20 million. Even that. I mean, it might, it might yeah. be much more than that, but like at least that um, and crushing it. And the last thing he did, and I told him to, is like, find me your replacement. Um, and so we started a program where we would go to the first year of business school at Harvard, MIT, Warden, Columbia, and Stanford. We'd say, hey, you're, you're going to join us full-time during the summer between your first and second year. Half the summer, you're going to be taught venture capital. Not because we want you to be VCs, but because we want you to, 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 to see what the ideas are, how to pitch. Uh, how to write a great, an effective deck and, and and keep your pulse on the fingers of the market, your fingers on the pulse of the market. And number two, half the summer, you're going to be in the company we're currently trying to build. So you understand what it's like to be a, a, an early stage founder. The profile, so the reason we took we took these schools, by the way, even though on average, we'd rather have people that don't go to business school, is that it's frankly, it's just an easy filtering mechanism. And, but we only wanted people who wanted to be founders. And most of them, the profile was they were product managers or city managers at one of the larger marketplaces like Instacart or Uber or, um, or Airbnb. And they wanted to now go and do it on their own. And, um, and, uh, and they were in HBS like looking for ideas and, and just maybe improving their, their skills and like finance, something like that. So they joined us for the summer. Uh, during their second year, they're part-time, 15, 20 hours a week, uh, mostly helping us filter inbound deal flow. And then when they graduate, they become full-time EIRs, meaning we pay them, I don't know where the salary was, like maybe 135K a year or something like that, to look for ideas with us. They look for their own ideas, and we meet like on a weekly basis to iterate. Now, also, every, twice a year... We bring the entire team, investment team, everyone like in the team together once in February and once in August in July, usually at my house in Turks and Caicos or in Canada. And we have to all come up with ideas that don't exist in the world of tech that should. And out of these, uh, and we usually come up with like 100 a pop or 150 a pop. So two to 300 ideas a year of which they can actually go and go deeper and pick some of these, et cetera. Um, and we typically would take two a year. 
but there'd be some churn because some some people decided to build companies that were not you know for us. Some people decided they don't want to be founders after all, etc. And we ended up building a lot of companies like that. I mean, we we some successful, not some not some not so much. So we built a company called BP, which should have been Carvana. You know, raised 150 million and was worth 700 million and like infamously blew up. Uh, uh, we we. The main mission is we try to have the founders fail fast. So we try to build a company. We build a company called Poncho, which is like an insurance company, and it didn't grow big enough. And so we decided to close it. But then we've had a, a lot of companies that are really doing well. So we're in Rebag, which is a handbag marketplace. Um, I think they're going to do 200 million revenues this year or something like that. Uh, uh, that is that the founder is amazing. We were in Properly, which is a Zillow, Trulia meets Compass meets uh, Open Door for Canada. Absolutely crushing it. Last round, I was like, you know, multi-hundred million dollar valuation. We're investors in that with you. Great company. Thank oh. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm chairman of that one. And uh, Unshul is one of the best, uh, you know, a EIRs we've ever had. Also one of the best founders we've ever had. The team is amazing. We're in Mundi, which is a trade finance company uh, between uh, Mexico and the U.S. helping SMBs in Mexico export to the U.S. And they they grew from zero to like tens of millions in in in, in, in originations in like a year and a half, like mind by I know if it's tens of millions, definitely over ten million, might be over twenty million now. Um, we're in like Seafair, a marketplace for helping. Uh, shipping companies find seafarers and you know, kind of a work rise for for shipping uh we're we're in uh umami card which is a vertical grocer in the asian category we've created mealco which is a kind of shopify for restaurants helping uh people build digital brands in in food and helping operate restaurants operate better and more effectively i mean many of these and actually i ran one of them for a well, while, actually, 2014, 2015, I built a mobile classified site in the U.S. called Solid, which I then merged with Wallapop. I ran Wallapop U.S. and was chairman of Wallapop. And then we merged that with LetGo, which now, of course, is merged with OfferUp. So now it's OfferUp. And that's a multi-billion dollar company, uh, which I ran 2014, 2015. Um, and the studio model is as follows. Very, very different, very generous, because we do very few. We, you come in. We pay you 135k until you find an idea. Once you find an idea, we put in the first 750k with 65% of the capital going to the team, 35% to us, and then we commit the next 2 million at either 10 million valuation or market if you can get better terms. Uh, but we have the right to invest 2 million in in your next round. And uh, and and so the t- it's not at all like some of the other studios out there where the teams get 5, 10, 15%. Or in our case, they start with 65% and actually real capital, right? They're like you kind of get 2.75 million. So if you don't want to go to market for the next first two years, you don't really need to. And that model has really worked well um, in terms of like, it's fine. We've built amazing companies. The problem is it's time consuming and my time is not scalable. You know, I'm still, I'm on the board of like, and these companies, it's it's the opposite model. Like, you know, we're coming up with the ideas. So, and often I even ran product like Rebag and Lofty. I was like, I, I went to Ukraine and Romania and I, I hired the team. I I, I I was like scrum master, you know, I was like, I was actually writing the stories and managing the teams. I, w- I was working day and night for them uh, for many years. Um, and now I'm still on the board of like, you know, most of the ones I just mentioned. And and so that model, I mean, it's amazing, um, but it's just too time consuming. And so putting that on hold for now, but we still have like two or three more to build. <laughs> we still have two more to build as we speak, despite the fact that we're not recruiting a new batch in, in 2022. There's only so much Fabrice. 
that's a lot of, uh, sounds like you're spread pretty thin if you're doing all that. Yeah, yeah. Plus, we have a SPAC. Plus, you know, we, plus, I do a lot of stuff in crypto independently of what we do at FJ. Yeah, no, I'm spread too thin as is. And so, my current, uh, what I'd like to find a way to do, well, I, and uh, the reason I built the team to 31 is actually to do all the, a lot of stuff I don't like to do, which right. the good news is, is that. The problem is, when you're good at something, the world sends you, the universe sends you more of that. And so, the temptation, of course, is to do more and more and more. Uh, but I, I, I need to find a way to like be more scalable. And I think putting putting aside um, started the studio despite how much fun it is uh, and just focusing on, on, on the venture side because it's more scalable and pos- probably more useful for humanity in the long run but in terms of like placing bets in so many categories to try to address it, all the world's problems is probably a better allocation of time. I can tell you're inspired by it. Yeah. You've had a lot of success. I think that's safe to say, maybe an understatement <laughs> of the day. Um, did you grow up wealthy? So yes and no, uh, the which is a weird weird answer. Uh, my great grandmother, uh, sorry, great great grandmother, uh, in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, inherited a hotel from uh, when her husband passed away, and instead of doing the done thing, and um, and, and marrying again, she decided to just take over the hotel, which is like fully indebted. She turned it around, made it super profitable, then bought another one, then another one. She ended up owning all of the luxury hotels in Nice, owning half of the residential real estate of Nice, basically becoming the wealthiest, if not and if not the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest women in the world in the late 1800s. Um, she gave uh, it all to, she had multiple children. She gave it all to her oldest, Augustus, who was actually an, a, an effective manager and didn't lose any of it. But of course, uh, by the time, but he didn't do the same thing. And, and by the time his kids took over, uh, it was split between all of them. And they all spent, basically the nouveau reach, all they wanted to do is like hang out with like the Queen of England and the Prince of Monaco. Uh, and by the time of my grandparents' generation, by the time my parents came along, there was basically nothing left. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the it, it, imagine a, a generation that had been brought up with the idea that they were going to be wealthy and never need to work you know it's kind of the silver spoon in their mouth and yet didn't have anything uh or anything to show for it and so my father kind of started from scratch so when we were living you know the four of us my my brother and i have two brothers but like when we started my brother and my parents like in a studio apartment and he started working for this french billionaire as an analyst and they're a leverage buyout firm uh in the 70s and so we came from even though we had come from family that had a lot of money by the time my parent my parents level there was nothing left uh and so we started with nothing Uh, i went to public school um but in 1989 when i was 14 uh my father's so my father was uh, became grossly the ranks became the ceo of uh the company that 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 guy bought through an lbo and they sold it for whatever like a billion dollars i think my dad had like five uh, percent of it in stock options and it's kind of like the pre not venture capital per se but like a similar model and 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 overnight became wealthy and actually re- kind of retired at the age of 41 which i think was a huge mistake um 
but I, I guess I didn't live through it because I, at that point, I'd already, I was living with my grandmother and niece, and then I'd left for college and, and probably out of ego, I decided I didn't want to take any, require, ask for any help. So I, you know, paid for college mostly myself. I, I mean, for my living expenses myself. So I had to work like, I, I went to Princeton when I was 17, but I'd like to work four jobs plus build my first company to pay for it, et cetera. And whereas probably the easier thing would have been to ask my parents for money. So, because at that point in time, we did have money because that was two years after my father had become wealthy. But it, because I had left kind of my parents and I was living with my grandmother, I also didn't really notice a shift. Mm. Um, and, and so I came from an upper class family that was probably middle class in income, uh, but that rose through the ranks and then all of a sudden became wealthy at the age of 15. Well, age 15 for me, but my parents. Uh, my parents but, became wealthy. But from a life experience standpoint, it sounds like you had more modest uh, sensibilities as a kid than maybe generations before you. What's, um, yeah. how, is, how has money changed your life now? Because you, you've had tremendous success. Um, I know that that is challenging for a lot of entrepreneurs who are going through these cycles. What have been the ups and downs of this evolution for you? Um. You know, I don't know. Like, first of all, as a kid, I was just built differently from everyone else in my family. I was like really studious. Like, I until post college, I was like Sheldon. You know, for me, it was all about like intellectual pursuits and getting A pluses and skipping all the grades and winning the Olympiads. And and I was completely antisocial. Not not at all uh, a good public speaker or, or or frankly, just different. Like, I I cared about like studying economics and philosophy and getting a pluses and nothing else and math like i no interest outside of that uh, right. and and no time for anyone including by the way my family I, I was extremely arrogant and condescending as a kid of like you know you guys are not smart enough and worthy enough of my time and attention including my parents by the way i was like so it's funny because in a way i was the best kid ever like always a pluses going to bed early not doing right. anything bad etc but i was also a difficult kid in the sense that I like didn't provide much love. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you guys are not smart enough for me. Leave me be. <laughs> uh, I have learned, uh, and it's interesting because like I've come to value people in different. I think as like you 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 put emphasis and value in things you're really good at, and of course that I was really good at being smart and not so good at anything else. And so of course that was my my prism by which to 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 value mm. the world. And as you become older. And also more confident and successful, you also realize there's so many ways to to be and to live, and it's not it's not my way is a personal value judgment, but there are many other ways that are absolutely amazing. Uh, now to answer your question directly, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a non sequitur. No, it's so I became one, wealthy in in 2004. I sold uh, Zingy uh, for 80 million dollars. And I own 53% of the company. So I made like $43 million. Net of tax uh, was like 26.5. And what's interesting is like, in a way, it didn't change anything. Uh, I still lived in a studio apartment for a few more years. I, I think the, the big purchase at that time was an Xbox, a TV, and two tennis rackets. Uh, mostly driven by how busy I was, right? Like we were growing. We grew from $50 million in revenues in 04 to 200 in 2005. I wow. kept moving offices every four months and thinking we would be done. And like it kept. We kept needing bigger and bigger offices and hiring, and like so, it, it I, I didn't really hit me completely. Well, it, you know what's interesting is my first company where I built in ninety eight ninety nine. Like my company on paper was worth hundreds of millions, and that had come so easily that I didn't realize how much money that was. Like like at twenty, I started by by that company at twenty three. It was like an eBay of Europe. We had a buyout offer for like. 
um, 300 million at 40% of the company. I was going to make like $120 million. And, and again, like, I'm like, yeah, of course, everyone makes $120 million. It's just a bubble. Like, everything <laughs> seemed easy. Uh, right. I did not realize how, because you're 23, you don't know any better. And also, I never really lacked for money. And also, I never also really, I never, money was never an objective. It's like, it means, it's not even a means to an end. I want to be a tech founder. That's all I wanted to be. And, right. and, 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 and and whether or not I was going to be financially successful is kind of irrelevant, which is why, by the way, in 2000. And and so after the bubble burst, and and you know I I made I I I went from hero to zero basically, and like was bankrupt in 2001. Then I realized like you know maybe I should have taken a secondary for a couple of million, which people offered, and mm-hmm. I'm like nah, a couple billion. Who need? I want to be be the the founder that's all in. I don't want to take money off the table, et cetera. I like, I want to prove, I want to be the ideal entrepreneur. Uh, and of course, for me, I thought like a couple million is nothing. Of course, I, at that point, I was thinking that having literally nothing in my bank account. Right. <laughs> um, then I realized, oh shit, no, money is really hard to make. It's very easy to lose. It's very, very hard to make. Uh, and, but in 2001, when I went to build Zingy, I'm like, you know, this internet thing is is dead. It's small. It's not big, and no big deal. Um, at the end of the day, I, I didn't do this for the money. I did this to be. I wanted to create something and nothing. I love tech, so I'm going to build a new company. It's probably not going to be big, and it doesn't matter. Now, lo and behold, it turns out that the internet wasn't dead, <laughs> despite every company had gone on. You know, Web Webvan, Pets.com, uh, MCI, Workcom. Everyone had gone under, and and at that point in time, and VC stopped investing, but um, came back and and was financially successful. Now, what it's done for me since is I value I value experiences and I value my time. And so what I use the money for is I have a you know I have a butler or a, uh, an estate manager and, and and who's also my chef and like does all of the offline things that I don't like to do. You know, so I don't cook, I don't clean, I, et cetera. I have a I have a virtual assistant in the Philippines that manages my entire inter- in a life. Um, I I go heli skiing, which is extraordinarily expensive, by the way, for fun. Uh, now I don't own any physical goods per se. I mean, I've I have a house in Turks, I have a house, I have an apartment in New York, and I, have, uh, I have a house in in Revelstoke, but I don't have, you know, I really have like expensive cars or clothing or luxury, etc. All those things I don't think matter too much to me. I think physical goods or anchors, uh, but for me, it's more using using the financial success I've had as a a means of buying. Uh, Experiences I love, helping people around me, and I give millions a year. Uh, but beyond giving millions a year to charity, I actually give millions a year to my friends uh, mm. as a means of changing their lives and making making a difference on the day to day of their life. And 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 it's a bit non traditional in a way. Uh, but these are people I've known for 20, 30 years. And so I, I, I tell them, don't expect it to be recurring. It just happens when I have an exit or I feel you're in need. Uh, and, and it's meaningful for them. And I don't think it impacts our relationship. Um, so I think it's been an amazing tool. And it's also been an amazing tool for freedom. Like my dream, for instance, in, in, in FJ Labs is actually not to have external investors. If I could, if, if the maximum I can invest with my current strategy is 300 million a year, if I had 300 million a year of my own money to deploy, I would do that and not, not have any external capital. That would be way easier. Like that would remove the part of my life that I don't like of like dealing with LPs and fundraising and like K1s and like whatever, gap accounting and SEC registration and all that stuff. Um, I would do that in a heartbeat. So, you know, financial success is really a means of free personal freedom to do what you want when you want to to have the experiences you you want to have and to help the people around you 
Was there a moment when you felt like you got your sea legs with being wealthy? Where it went from, you know, kind of figuring out what that meant for you to, okay, I got it. I know my framework for how I want to use money to have impact on my friends, my personal life, et cetera. Eh, kind of happened automatic over time automatically. Like the as soon as I had capital, I started investing it in startups. Um, so I really scaled up my angel investing in 2005. And, and I knew I wanted to deploy capital and tech to, to, to back the, my friends who were building companies and to help them realize their dreams and to solve the problems in the world. So that immediately came to me uh, in terms of like um, helping my friends did that later. But I realized how what I could start considering like little capital could change uh, and it could make a difference in the lives of my friends. So a friend of mine, she was running um a dermatology clinic in New York and she's making whatever half a million a million a year and she decided instead to to go run a cancer research lab at Harvard and make like whatever 100k a year I mean mm-hmm. profound difference in her income yet for the world I thought it was like a massive net positive contribution and but as a result she could no longer afford like the damn payment or a house in Boston uh, so I I paid that for her. I'm like, you know, I, I think it's the right thing uh, for you and your husband and your kids to be able to live in an amazing place so you can actually do research that's meaningful to the world. And and that started happening little by little uh, over time. Um, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure there was ever like a, oh, this is the correct strategy. I mean, very rapidly, what I did realize is I don't, I never followed traditional wealth management advice. Um, you know, you go to these wealth managers or like Goldman or whatever, and they're like, oh, you should have like 50, 60% equities and 30% bonds and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like crazy. None of that ever made any sense to me. Same. I have a complete barbell portfolio where it's like uh, 10% cash because you want optionality of being able to take advantage of things in crises, 10% crypto, 10% uh, public stocks uh, of the things that have gone public in my portfolio that I still like and I hold. Um, 10% real estate that's really consumption. And then everything else is like early stage tech, tech stuff. So completely barbell works really well. And I, I realized it was much better at doing that, and ma- which is essentially the same thing as like running FJ Labs. You know, mm-hmm. FJ Labs in a way is a family office. <laughs> uh, right. And so I've been good on that front. Now, I made many mistakes. Like I, I, I lost in a way millions of dollars in Belize trying to like buy a big chunk of the country to preserve the, the rainforest, which, you know, taught me something about a rule of law. Uh, I, I lost millions of dollars in Dominican Republic doing something at a much smaller scale, you know, instead of hundreds of thousands of acres, uh, doing it with uh, 165 acres, wanting to build a big community where I would bring founders and and spiritual leaders and 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 uh, and artists to like just create and be there with no business model, but like everyone from the mayor to the minister of tourism and, and environment all wanted bribes, uh, you know, and create an environment that was not super tenable. So lost millions of dollars, you know, pursuing a few these alleys. So I made many mistakes along the way, but in general, at the end of the day, my true north star of like you know help those around you help help the world through in my case tech investments so like finding solutions to the world's problems and like buy yourself the life you want to lead uh, has been amazing by the way through that process i did a lot of iteration in 2013 
actually 2012, I gave almost all my physical possessions to charity. Uh, I went down to like 50 items that fit in uh, carry on my backpack and, and my tennis bag. And I went couch surfing in friends' couches for a year. Then I went like an Airbnb. I lived in Airbnbs and hotels for like three years uh, beyond that uh, all around the world, like making sure I allocate time to invest in my friends and friendship, my friendships and my family in a way I'd never done that before. And I loved it. And why did you need to do that? Just because the material items were kind of owning you at some level? Was that the thinking? Why'd you yeah, have to dump I, all the goods to do that, to have relationships? It, and- time allocation, right? Like if if you have, like at a country house in Bedford and I would go, and it was amazing, right? Like I, it was huge and we played paintball there and like it organized like parties and we played video games, we had the gaming room, et cetera. But at the end of the day, um, I kind of went there because I was paying so much for it, which is the wrong reason to use something. The minute I didn't right. have an apartment, the minute I didn't have a house, I was like, okay, now I have infinite freedom and flexibility where do i want to be who is it that i want to be spending time with and so being when you have a default you go to that default if you remove the default option you can be way more thoughtful about what it is you really want to do who it is who it is you really want to hang out with and 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 the, the fundamental problem i was trying to solve for is as you get older as your friends uh, start getting married, having kids, jobs, et cetera, like you, the quality, of your, the, te- the texture of your friendships like changes. When you're in college, you're remaking the world, you're spending, your, you're seeing your friends seven days a week. You know, even at McKinsey, I would see my friends day, many days, many hours every week. And all of a sudden it became like a, the biographical update. I would see you once every six weeks. Mm-hmm. And at that point is like, what happened to your husband and your work, et cetera, and your kids since then? And it's fine, but it's not the reason we became friends. We became friends because there was a more fundamental connection and 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 perspective and belief system of the world and extraordinary conversations. And I wanted to rekindle that in in my thirties, and because it seemed to have gone away between like the age of like twenty five and whatever thirty five. And I'm like, there must be a way to change it. And others are not making the adjustments to their lives. Why don't I adjust my life to make it happen? And now. There were many false starts, right? Like the couch surfing was a total failure because, of course, I wasn't taking into account the fact that I was in a position in their life and and they still had like to bring kids to school and go to work, et cetera. Um, the Airbnb thing worked really well until Airbnb was made illegal in most of the major cities and like across New York, all the high-end inventory disappeared. Uh, then the hotels all became full. So I was like moving hotels every four days. So that's actually the reason I ended up buying an apartment in New York. I was very happy living in like billionaires' apartments, you know, uh, for a month at a time in every neighborhood in New York and hosting dinner parties there. Uh, But once I had to live in hotels and move hotel room every five days, I'm like, okay, that's not viable. And I couldn't find high end rental inventory I like. So I bought a place. But um, I guess people don't put enough iteration and, and and thought into their lives. They follow the default. Whereas you can throw stuff on the on, on the wall and, and see what sex and see what sex for you right like people are built differently and what they want to do and how they want to lead their lives and and they follow the i guess think the default path way too much like my life is very non-traditional in general like i do a month in new york then a month in Turks and caicos uh i'll do a month in canada um because like i'm in new york and it's socially artistically professionally extraordinarily intense and if you're doing you're not thinking and then i come to Turks and i'm working during the day i mean i'm in Turks right now and we're doing this call and i have like 12 calls today but 
I'll meditate, I'll go kite surf, I'll play tennis, uh, uh, and I'll take the time to read and write and think and be reflective and rebuild my batteries. And then most people don't necessarily think through, okay, what is right for them in light of their energy level, personality, et cetera. And so that iterative design has led me to the life I lead today. I love all that. You know, and you mentioned through there that you do a lot of charity, which I think is great. Um, I particularly was interested in the buying a brain forest or attempts to do so. You know, taking it that further, uh, I would love to hear your take on impact, right? Is there yeah. a cause that you're passionate about or some particular topic? Let me put it a different way. This is my favorite way to ask this question. If you were king, not president, king, what is one thing you would change? So I'm going to give the hyper-rational answer to that. Um, Please. If you look at all the policies you could do in the U.S. and which ones would actually impact uh, well-being for people the most, um, it's actually there's one thing that has much larger impact on, on personal outcome than everything else. And, and so in the U.S., social mobility has declined. It used to be that 95% of people made more money than their parents. Now it's about 50% since uh, people born since 1982. And the main reason for that is that the top cities are the ones where all the jobs are created where all the opportunities are have become unaffordable. And the reason they're unaffordable is we've passed extraordinarily idiotic zoning and landscaping laws and uh, uh, that, that mean that you cannot build as easily as you should be able to. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Like if your current owner restricting supply means your, thing, your, your home's increase in value dramatically. Um, but it's extremely bad for like social mobility, uh, economic diversity, and and so you look at San Francisco, 80% of the city is zones that apartments are illegal. You cannot have more than two-story buildings. And mm. as a result, you have you, you have had it, these cities become extraordinarily unaffordable. So if I could change one one thing, is essentially remove all air rights, all essentially zoning and construction regulation. Other than obviously, if you're not going to be building over whatever Central Park, but like air rights in city in New York City make no sense. Like having these buildings that are less than 100 years old be like landmark that you can't build over them makes no sense. New York, you should be able to build up as much as you can, and we should have unlimited supply. And of course, there'll be a lag of like eight years or 10 years before things get built and and, and prices adjust. But that actually solves affordable housing. And when you solve affordable housing, you, you recreate mobility and you allow people to get the best jobs. And this is what changes the outcome more than anything else. Now, that's not a, a something I'm investing in in any way, shape, or form um, because there's crazy nimbyism and, and, and political forces against it. And, and it's, it has to be – and in the U.S., the rules are like literally like – neighborhood by neighborhood and it's so painful so I, as king i would do that that is yeah. not what i locate my time to um now i've not put a lot of thought into charity um now first of all what i do at the charity level is is way more personal and directed will have a much larger impact on the lives of the people i help but it's much more smaller scale like in the Dominican republic i helped pay for the education of ten thousand kids from k through 12. It's amazing for these kids. It changes their life outcomes dramatically. Is there a program you do that through, or you just set that up directly? Uh, no, no, it's the dream project that I was funding, uh, and mm. I. But I, I helped them beyond that. I help. I built like a tech center where they could like learn programming and have access cool. to computers and the internet and find jobs, etc. Um, I I fund something called the University of the People, which is uh, helping not 
low-income people basically get U.S. degrees, especially in things like computer science. Um, and they're people from like uh, over 100 nations, and 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 they often end up getting jobs at like Google, Facebook, etc. So it's so it's been mostly around education, helping people be able to increase their out their life outcomes through education. Often in the communities where I was living, right? I lived in the DR for a large extent, like four or five months a year, from 2012 to 2019, uh, 2018. The and I've done a lot of that. Now separately I've I've direct, given direct contributions to many of my friends. And I mean like mm-hmm. dozens of them, right? Like and we're talking millions and millions of dollars. It's a life changing for them. But mm-hmm. at a larger scale, all of that is dwarfed from a social and economic impact by what I do in, in, in as a, as a tech investor, right? Like my tech investments of hundreds and hundreds of companies, I think ultimately will change the lives of billions of people. And yeah, they're for profit, but like there's a fundamental social motivation for them, and I think they will dwarf anything I do on the direct investment and the direct charity front. That's why most of my personal capital is actually allocated to investing in technology to solve the world's problems. And I think we will, by the way, I'm extraordinarily optimistic on how we're going to address climate change, inequality of opportunity, et cetera. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much for doing this, Fabrice. Thank you for having me. Every time I talk to Fabrice, I feel a little bit smarter. Very grateful for him being on the show today uh, and grateful to have him kind of in my orbit working together and doing deals together. He's a great guy. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review. This is my basic pandering. Help us out. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.